Worship team, appreciate you. Um, good evening, church. So uh, glad to just even be here with you and just want to make sure uh, those of you who are watching online are aware that uh, this will be our last Wednesday night that we're broadcasting starting next week. We will not have the broadcast on, and so we just are inviting you and encouraging you to come make your way out and be with God's people and pray with us. Uh, there's some intimate aspects about the prayer meeting that are different than everything else, and it's just one of those things you kind of have to experience to be able to be a part of. So we want to encourage you, make your way out there, and uh, as best you can, join us as we continue to pray and believe God for miracles. And speaking of uh, believe, uh, I was uh, on Sunday. I had mentioned, you know, a few different characters that are known for being kind: Bob Ross, Mr. Rogers, and then a newer one who had a show recently called uh, Ted Lasso. And in that show, there's this sign that he puts up, not just in the locker room of the team that he coaches, but literally all over his house. And it's this yellow sign with blue lettering, and it just simply says "Believe." And the funny thing is, now with schools opening up. Every, almost every school, teachers have this in their classroom. I saw actually one school where the teachers had it as they were leaving the teacher's lounge. It was a reminder, hey, believe. Believe in what you're doing. Believe in the kids that we're doing this with. It's, it's a powerful statement and one small word that's really an encouraging factor because oftentimes doubt creeps in where believe uh, should be. And, and I was thinking about that word, just that the idea of being able to believe God. And, and I'm thinking about in prayer, I think oftentimes our greatest struggle is not prayer, it's believing that God will do what we're asking him to do in prayer. That's where we really find a hard time because uh, in desperate moments we're able to pray and, and in desperate moments we ask others to pray. But even from a minister's perspective, there have been a few times where somebody's asking me to pray and the battle for me is not praying out loud. I know some people have fear of just speaking in front of other people. That's never been an issue for me. But the truth is, it's I don't know if God's gonna do this miracle or I'm not sure if I believe that God will do. And it's not always that he can. I mean, I, I, theologically, I understand that God can, but in reality, in certain moments, I remember one time in particular as a young man, wasn't even a pastor, I was just a believer, and uh, our neighbors asked me to go to the hospital and pray for their grandmother who was sick. And I remember going to the hospital and, uh, and the grandmother was in pretty bad shape and she was very old at that point. And I remember thinking, I mean, I can pray, but she's old, like, probably not going to make it. I didn't say that out loud, but in my head, I'm like, you know, I said all the right things on the outside, but in my heart, I didn't believe that God was going to do that. And I'm not saying that my lack of belief caused her death, but the reality is uh, my belief maybe could have done something different. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about believing. And if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open up to Mark chapter nine. Mark chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 14 through 19. Let me give you just a little bit of context of what's going on in Mark chapter 9. This is immediately after what the Bible describes as the transfiguration of Jesus, which is that Jesus took a couple of disciples with them up to this mountaintop, and he revealed his glory, his, his godness, basically, and it was bright and beautiful and shown. It was like God took a moment and said, hey, look at my aweness. Look at how impeccably amazing I am, and the Bible says that he does that, and, and it's this powerful moment, and Peter, who was one of the disciples there, is like, man, we need to stay on this mountaintop. This is amazing. This is great. 
But the reality is that we don't live on the mountaintop, we live in the valley. And in the valley, there's stuff that goes on. And immediately when they come down from the valley, right off the bat, they run into a situation. There's an argument going on. There's, there's fighting going on. There's back and forth. And Jesus walks into this commotion. And this is kind of where we pick up the story in verse 14. It says, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around him and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked him, what are you arguing with them? I'm sorry. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at, and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. It seems like a pretty harsh rebuke in this moment. You almost get the sense that Jesus is kind of frustrated. Uh, you know, many of you who are parents, you might understand that. It, there's a lot of things that you like to do for your kids, but when you do it for the millionth time, there's that moment where you're like, ugh. How, how many times do I have to tell you? Or how many times do I have to pick that up? Or, or how many, you're not going to have me your whole life, right? Anybody's parents ever said that? You know, you're not, I'm not going to live with you your whole life. I'm not going to be around forever. You're going to have to figure this out. You're going to have to start doing this on your own. And here Jesus is having this moment where he realized, listen, at some point I'm going to send back and you need to start figuring this out. You need to understand the authority and the, the power that has in belief that I've given you. And so is this moment where he's frustrated and he, he basically calls them all out. The disciples, the scribes, the father, he calls them all a faithless generation. How long am I going to put up with you? But here's the thing. I don't think Jesus was rebuking the father for asking for his son to be healed. I don't think he's rebuking the scribes who, for arguing with his disciples. I don't even think he's really rebuking the disciples because they weren't able to cast out the demon. No, he's rebuking them simply because they don't believe. That's at the core of his rebuke. God never gets mad that we ask. God never gets annoyed or frustrated that we pray. There's never a moment where we bother God with our prayer. I guess what does annoy him and frustrate him based on the scripture is when we offer that prayer with little to no faith, when we don't believe what we're asking for. And this is what I really want to dive into because I think in this moment, Jesus is calling them out on their inability to believe. And I think part of that issue is that their belief was placed in the wrong places. And I think oftentimes these are the same mistakes that you and I can make if we're not careful. So if you're taking notes, just a couple of thoughts I want to go through. Number one is this. We got to believe in Jesus, not in knowledge. We got to believe in Jesus, not in knowledge. The Bible says that the scribes were arguing with his disciples, basically calling them out for their inability to cast out the demon. Now, uh, another translation says uh, religious teachers, just to make it simply. But the scribes, they had a very unique responsibility among Jewish scholars. Their responsibility was to sit down and write the Torah. 
And they would write it letter by letter. They couldn't write it from memory. So if they wrote the word and, they couldn't just be like, oh, that's the word and, A-N-D. They had to go look, write down letter by letter. It had to be like a, a hair's width apart. There could be no error, no mistake. They had to be so ridiculously meticulous with the documents that they were scribing, which is, you know, basically the Old Testament. Let's say they're writing, you know, the book of Deuteronomy and they get to the very last word and the very last letter and they make a mistake. The entire book that they just copied down had to be burned and destroyed. Okay, that's how meticulous they had to be. So you would imagine that someone who is that meticulous and sitting down and copying the word of God all day long, they got knowledge. They know a thing or two, right? They've, they've got their literal face in the book all day long. But you know what I've learned is you can know all the right things and still lack in faith and not believe. You can have a ton of knowledge. You could grow up in church. You, you could be a, a, a part of the church. You know, you could have six, you know, six generation pastor or whatever. You can have a master's in divinity, a doctorate. You can have all types of things and not believe. As a matter of fact, I was just looking the other day, it was kind of interesting news that Harvard had just put into the position as head of their uh, chaplain department, an atheist. And I'm just like, what? But again, from a secular perspective, they just want someone who can do the job. They don't care about the person's actual beliefs. And so here's where you and I can often get in trouble is we can put our faith in what we know, not in who we know, Right? And so, well, well, I know this. Yeah, but do you know the one who you're talking to about this? Here's a good example. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. It says, as the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of the world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, from an intellectual standpoint, you're never going to accomplish the things that God wants you to accomplish in the kingdom of God. Does that mean we should all be dumb and not read our Bible and not understand anything? That, that's not an excuse to be ignorant. But what it is saying is, is your biblical understanding, your scholarship, your, your, all the books you read, and you might have read a million books, that doesn't equate to a greater faith and greater belief. It might help. But it's not the same thing. And, and here what Jesus was saying is, listen, you are not going to come to the saving grace and understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ simply through intellect. It's going to come through your belief in who God is. I think that's why Jesus says that we have to have faith like a child. Child, you know, it's not that they're dumb. They just don't overthink things. They believe you when you tell them something. And they act on that belief. And I think part of our issue sometimes when we pray is we overthink what we're praying. We look at the situation and rather than look at it spiritually or in faith, we look at it from our own intellect. And we start to decide before we even ask God whether or not God will do this based on our experience, based on our knowledge, based on what we know from watching how many ever episodes of whatever medical drama program you've watched. And so when somebody says, hey, I need you to pray because, you know, I've been diagnosed with stage four cancer, there's a party that goes, ah, well, from what I know from stage four, there's no cure, so there's no point in praying for that. 
Hey, I, I need you to pray because my grandmother's very sick. Well, your grandmother's, you know, she's getting close to 90. That's just what happens. There's really no point in praying for that. And so oftentimes we kill our faith and we lack in belief simply because we allow our intellect to supersede our faith. I'm not saying it's one or the other. I'm just saying don't let intellect oversee what God is telling you. Because Bible says that my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. It's so far above what you can rationally understand. That's why it's a miracle. That's why we have to believe. Because if you understood it, you wouldn't have to believe. You just understand it. And here God is saying, listen, you're a faithless generation. I think it's interesting. The scribes are debating and arguing with the disciples for their inability to cast out the demon. Yet they're not offering any help on their end. They're, they're ridiculing, oh, you couldn't cast it out. See, you're not the real this, and we study this, and da-da-da. But I don't see the scribes trying to cast out the demon. I'm sure the scribes had been in that community much longer than the disciples walking through. See, you can be an intelligent fool. You can have all the understanding. Well, you know, the church should do this, and, and the church should do that, and then you'll see God move. And it's like, well, why don't you have enough faith to get in there and do it? You believe for it. Well, you know, I have this, I told my wife this the other day, over the years, I've met several people with big time degrees and I have been convinced more than ever, it's probably not that hard to get a degree. And I mean that with all due respect, but I have met a lot of intelligent fools. A lot of people where I'm like, you gotta, wow. I mean, I guess. Because see, getting a degree just says you're able to do the work that means to get the degree, you can read a book, study it, and you can analyze it and put it together. It doesn't mean you know how to apply that knowledge. It doesn't mean that you have the faith to push forward on what God is calling you to do. We need to be careful because our belief is in Jesus, not in what we know. If you're taking notes, the other thing that I notice, <laughs> important for us to understand, is our, we have to believe in Jesus, not in titles. We have to believe in Jesus, not in titles. Um, the father comes and he brings his son to the disciples, probably has already brought them before to the scribes. He's probably brought them to the religious leaders in that area. He's probably brought them to doctors. He's probably brought them to a number of different things. And we'll get to that in a moment. But isn't this what happens to a lot of us in church, particularly in church, where if there's a big prayer, we need the pastor to pray for it. Not even the youth pastor, because he's just in charge of the youth. I need the senior pastor. I need the main guy in charge. Because we think for some way in our head, if, if a pastor prays for us, right, if, if this person prays for us, then somehow God's going to hear it better because it's coming from them. And so oftentimes I'll hear people that, hey, can you pray for me? And I like to normally respond with, I'll pray with you, not for you. I'll come alongside you and I'll pray with you. But it, it does find it interesting how often people will, will sidestep prayer warriors, people who have a gift to pray, who are anointed in prayer, and they bypass them because they don't have the title. They only have the anointing. I would much rather go to somebody with the anointing than the title. Because guess what? Some of the most anointed people in the world have no title. They are not known. Some of the best pastors in the world are in small churches in unknown areas with unknown titles who no one's ever heard about. They're not on YouTube and they don't have a million books and they're not world renowned, but they are anointed. Oh, the anointing is so much more powerful than the title. And can I tell you, just with all due respect to all the pastors on staff, there are so many people in our church who are far more anointed to pray than everyone on staff. 
And I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not belittling us. I, we can pray too. But I'll tell you sometimes, it's just that our prayers sound more eloquent, but I'd rather have somebody have a more powerful prayer than a more eloquent prayer. I pray a lot, so it sounds like I can know what I'm doing. Again, I'm not trying to, I hope my prayers are answered. I hope God hears my heart when I pray. But what I do know is, I wouldn't rank prayer as one of my highest giftings. But there are people in this room right now who I would go to you before I ever went to me for prayer. Mark chapter 9, verse 4 through 8 says this. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. This is right before what we saw. Remember I talked about being at the mountaintop. This is what's going on in the mountaintop. Jesus has transfigured. Jesus has shown himself. Then Elijah and Moses, these are are legends in the Old Testament. These are heroes to the Jewish faith. These are people that Peter would have understood right off the bat. These are the Jesus before Jesus showed up. Okay, it says, then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they only saw Jesus with them. See, here's the problem that Peter had, is that he wanted to build three tents. He was putting Elijah and Moses on equal plane with Jesus. And I love that the moment he does that, there's a thunderous rebuke basically from heaven, and all of a sudden, he only sees Jesus. Because the reality is, Elijah and Moses were great, but they're not Jesus. And again, there are great people with great titles who have done great things. The problem is, they don't have the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They are not Jesus Christ. They did not die for my sins. They don't have that anointing. They didn't speak the world into existence. And so we have to be careful because a lot of times when they're legendary, we lift them up. But I'm telling you, Some of the most unknown saints in this world are some of the most anointed. Why? Because God loves to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Because God anoints who he wants to anoint. And it's not for position. It's not for fame. It's not for any of those other things or accolades. It's because his spirit. And here's, here's a big thing for me personally, why I think God loves to use the most unknown people. Because when he uses them, God gets all the glory. When he uses someone with a great title, whether we like it or not, we tend to give some credit, if not a lot of credit, to the person with the title. And so I always get uncomfortable if I do a sermon and someone comes up, that was a powerful word, that was a great job, man. I'm like, you know, if I'm not careful, I might start believing you. Because you don't come up to me and tell me how much they stink when I know they stink sometimes. And I try to take that with a grain of salt and understanding, Lord, if you spoke to them, praise God. And if all they heard was me, I would do better next time. (laughs) But the anointing goes beyond the title. So let's not look for titles when we want to believe. I love that he went to disciples. I love that he went to the scribes. These are people that we normally go to. I love that you bring issues to the pastors. And pastors are here to help guide you. But never let the title of the pastor supersede the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Because, man, if we understood that, then we would be gathering together in each other's homes. We would be calling each other up. We wouldn't be waiting to see if we can make an appointment with Pastor Carlos. Because we can lift each other up. Because the same power that flows through him and I and everyone else on staff flows through you. We've got to believe in Jesus. 
Not in knowledge, we gotta believe in Jesus, not in titles. And we have to believe in Jesus, not in desperation. What do I mean by that? Well, no one in this crowd that we saw here was more desperate for this boy to be healed than his father. But desperation alone does not mean you believe that God does what you ask him to do. I think a lot of times we think, well, I really, really wanted it. And somehow that means that God is going to do it. Because I really, really wanted it. And again, I'll go back to the whole parenting thing. There are a lot of things that my daughter really, really wants that I don't give her. She's starting to get into the age where she really, really wants to eat her boogers. I don't let her do that. Okay, but she said, oh, that's salty. I'm like, stop it, no. And we're just, we're correcting this whole thing. I'm like, I can't wait for 15, 20 years to make fun of you for this, but right now that's just gross, don't do that. And God as a loving father won't always respond to your prayers just because you really, really want him to do it. But I really, really want that. Okay, but it may not be really, really good for you. And so here in this situation, the father's desperate. And I'm sure the father has a reason to doubt that God is gonna do something. Right, Because uh, when you're desperate, you try almost anything. And you honestly, you don't care who the help comes from when you're desperate enough. I'm sure he brought his son to all types of healers and all types of people. I'm sure he saw person after person fail to try to bring this demon out of his boy. And I think that's why you see this subtle rebuke from Jesus as we go a few verses in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 21. It says, and Jesus asked this father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. The father obviously believes because he brought his son. There was a measure of faith there. There was a level of faith enough to want to bring your son and try to trust the situation. So he obviously had faith and it takes some faith to realize how much faith you don't have. Let me say that again. It takes at least a little bit of faith to start to recognize how much faith you lack. Because when you don't have faith, you're completely ignorant to the whole concept of faith. But when you're caught in a moment, let me put it like this, because I think many of us can relate to this situation. If you've ever been in a situation where maybe you're not doing so well spiritually, and all of a sudden there's a major issue in your household or to a loved one or to you personally, and there's this major desperation to pray, and in that moment where you want to pray, there's a hesitation because you realize how far away you've been from God. You have enough faith to say, I need to go to God, but you're also now aware of how much you've lacked faith in the past. Now, God is gracious and God is loving and God will hear you even with your little bit of faith. But God will also call you out to say, no, you need greater faith for this situation. And I think sometimes that's why God allows certain situations to happen to us. And I'll get into that in just a little bit, but I love what it says. It says, I believe God can, but let me say this. Have we been here before? I believe God can. I just don't believe God will, right? Am I alone on that? Have you ever felt that way? I know God can do it. I just don't think he'll do it. I know God can remove this situation. I know God can provide for us financially. I know God can open a door for my new job. I know God can help me bring my kids back into saving grace. I know what God, I know God can do anything. I just don't believe he'll do it with me. I just don't believe he'll do it in my situation. And this is where our issue comes in. James chapter one, verse six through eight. 
Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea and is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The problem with doubting is, is you're, you're back and forth. And when you're back and forth, whenever the situation does resolve itself, even if it is God, very little does he get the credit. Or very seldomly does he get the credit. Why? Because you don't know if it was God or if it was the other thing you were going to. Because you're back and forth. God was just one of the many options. And so oftentimes we miss out on miracles simply because we don't trust in one alone. We keep going back and forth. And when you go back and forth, very often you end up with neither. This is why it's important, I think, in this situation to understand just because you're desperate doesn't mean God's going to answer you. Or just because you're desperate doesn't mean God's going to answer you the way you want him to answer you. Here this man has tried it all, and he's still in that situation. And so what's the answer then? Well, it's what I've kept saying. We need to believe in Jesus, not anything else. And here's how we get to that. Because I do believe uh, there's an important aspect in this message that we need to understand. If you keep reading the story, the Bible says that Jesus eventually cast the demon out of the young boy and, and everything goes great and everyone kind of goes about their business. But then the disciples come over to Jesus. Now, keep in mind, this is not like the disciples have never cast out demons before. They've already done miracles. They've already cast out demons. They have been anointed and equipped and sent to do this work. So they're a little bit confused. And so when they get with Jesus, they kind of ask him a question that I think many of us would ask him. Why couldn't we do that? Why is it that you were able to do it and, and why couldn't I do it? And listen to Jesus' response in verse 29. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And some manuscripts add prayer and fasting. Does that mean the disciples didn't pray? I'm sure they prayed. I'm sure the scribes prayed. I'm sure the father prayed, but I don't think what Jesus is saying, hey, this only could come out if you ask God for it, because I think sometimes that's what we minimize prayer to. We minimize prayer to asking God for things, and I don't think that's what he's saying, because if you look at what prayer and fasting do, prayer and fasting does not convince God to do the thing you're asking him to do, because you can't convince God to do something he's not going to do. What prayer and fasting do is it draws you closer to the personhood of God. It brings you into a greater intimacy with the Lord. And as you are drawn closer to the Lord, your belief starts to increase. Your faith starts to increase because your proximity to God has increased. And when your proximity to God increases, it's natural for belief to increase. So it's not so as much that, hey, I prayed and fasted and God saw how desperate I was and now he's gonna answer my prayer. No, because it wasn't about the desperation for the prayer. It was about the desperation for God. God saw I wanted him. And because I want the Lord, my prayers are more readily answered. Again, it isn't that prayer and fasting make us more worthy to cast out demons. It's that prayer and fasting draw us closer to the heart of God and they will put us more in line with his power they're an expression of our total dependence on him. To say, God, whether you answer this the way I want you to answer this or not, I trust in you. My faith is in you. And you know what that does? It's such a powerful thing. When you get to that point, no matter the answer that the Lord gives, it's well with your soul. 
This is why we keep saying, push, pray till something happens, right? Pray until something happens. What if that something to hap- that happens isn't what you wanted? What if you prayed for healing and the healing doesn't come this side of heaven? Does that mean that God doesn't like you? I was talking to a young man uh, about this the other day. We were, we were hanging out and I'm just, hey, where are you in your faith and anything that you're struggling with? And he goes, well, I struggle a little bit with the idea of prayer because sometimes I ask God and it doesn't happen. And again, I think that's a very almost infantile or juvenile way of considering prayer. Prayer is not just about asking God for things in the same way that talking to your spouse or your family is not just about getting things out of them. It's about getting close to them. It's about building that relationship. And when you are close to them and you're in need of something, the response is easy. We need to get to a point where our goal is not simply our needs, but our desire to get close to God. And the problem I think a lot of times is we don't feel the need to get close to God until we realize how far away from him we are. And most often than not, we don't realize how far away we are until a very bad situation comes into our lives. Church, I wanna challenge you not to wait until a very bad situation occurs to prepare your hearts and your minds to draw close to the Lord. I wanna be so close to God that no matter what situation comes into play, I don't gotta go searching for him. I'm right there already. I wanna ask Pastor Jason if he can come up. In a moment, I want us to take some time tonight to just get into God's presence and draw close. And uh, this week, uh, a cousin of mine sent me a message asking if I would come to his son's uh, birthday party. Now, his son is turning 16, and the reason this is kind of important, he asked if I would do like a little service for him, a little, say a few words. I said, absolutely because this isn't gonna be hard for me, because his son is one of the most pivotal moments of my prayer life. Uh, 16 years ago, roughly, or I would say 15 years and some months, uh, his son, who had just been born, he was about nine months old, and my mother was his daycare giver, his babysitter. And so he was at our house all the time, and I'd play with him all day long, and uh, we would kind of make a joke that he, he panted like a puppy, and he would, he would just... <laughs> And so my mom's like, this isn't right. You should get him checked out. Something's going on. So they go ahead and get him checked out. And it turns out he has not one but two murmurs in his heart, which are holes in his heart. Oftentimes when a baby has a murmur, it can close on its own. But this one was significant enough that it required surgery. And so they went in and they did surgery on his heart. Mind you, he's nine months old at this point. And the surgery is successful. But post-op, he ends up having a brain aneurysm and the whole left side of his body goes limp. And then there's a clot in his neck. And we got the report in that moment that if the clot moved to his brain, he'll die. And if the clot moves to his heart, he'll die. And because he was post-op, they couldn't give him any blood thinners to try to remove the clot. So they said, literally, you just have to hope that the clot doesn't move. I wanna say I was like 15 years old at that point. And I had just really been committed to coming to Excel as a student. And they told me, and immediately I knew, I need to pray. I remember getting online, I think it was either MySpace or Facebook or something. I got online and I just said, hey guys, would you please pray for the situation? I remember I was by myself in the living room and I fell on the couch weeping. It was the first time I ever prayed and weeped, really where this, God, please do. 
It was the first time I really was bringing something to God that I wasn't just desperate about, but I was so close to God at that point. I had been growing so much spiritually. I said, God, I know you can do this. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I had all my friends praying. And obviously, you know, his 16th birthday is coming up, so he survived. And I remember just a, a couple months later, he's, he's at our house and remember his whole left side of his body had died and, and he was nine months, so he didn't even crawl really yet. He didn't really move yet, but he was learning. And my mom was adamant, don't help him. He needs to figure this out. He needs to learn how to use that part of his body. And I remember one time I'm watching him in his playpen and he's trying to stand up. Every kid tries to stand up in the playpen, but left side of his body's not well. So I'm watching him. He's kind of scooting with his right side and he reaches up with his right arm that's functioning and, and he pushes his head against the pen and he starts shimmying with his head and he finally gets kind of kind of close and then he falls. And then he tried it again and then he falls. Two, three, four times he does this and he falls. And I'm like trying to, I want to help him so bad. But finally the last time he shimmies up and then he just swings the dead arm over the bar and he lifts himself up and he looks at me like, bro, did you see that? And I was like, yeah! And I, then I went, thank you, God. And now he's a handsome young man, taller than me. He's got a little bit of, of his hand closes, but he's fine. Per perfectly functional, perfectly well. But what it did to me is it skyrocketed my belief. Not because God answered it, because I've had plenty of prayers since then that God hasn't answered, but because I knew God heard me. And that to me is enough. The fact that he answered it the way I wanted to answer it, that was just bonus. So I want to ask you to stand if you can. And if you're watching online, I want to encourage you. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to invite the people in this room to spend the next 10 minutes just interceding and, and drawing close. And we're going to spend some time in worship. We're going to get our hearts to a place where it's close to the heart of God. And as we do that, I want to encourage you, uh, those of you watching online, the feed is going to end around that time. But don't just go on with your day. Can you spend the next 10 minutes as well? Get alone in your room, go in the shower, wherever you have the most privacy. And would you spend 10 minutes just desperate for the presence of God to say, God, I want to draw close to you because of you. I need you, not just what you could do for me.